Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Balanced Garden podcast. I hope you've been looking after yourself and everyone else as well as can be. Uh, Thank you for your kind words about the last episode and for tuning into this one, which explores the ideas of migration, home and the crossroads in between. In this episode, I'm chatting with award-winning filmmaker Nina Constable about the paths her career has taken and how she came to work with the first beavers to be seen in Cornwall for 400 years. And in part three, we hear what Thanksgiving means to Syracuse 5th District Councillor and the musician Joe Driscoll. But before those very special guest appearances, I'm pondering over the phenomenon of migration. Given that this is the time when some of our feathered friends gradually arrive or depart these shores, and when many other species move homes across land, air and sea. The Greek root of the word migrate is to change, and with so much change afoot it seemed like the thing to think about. Helping me to start to do this, the founder of Balanced Garden, Jasmine Fodan, gave me a handy tip-off when I mentioned the theme I was planning for this podcast. I listened to a great podcast, actually, um, a Radiolab podcast about migration. <clears throat> I don't know if you want to listen to it or not, but um, I think it's, I can't remember what it's called, that's the annoying thing, but I'm just going to tell you this because it might be a fact you can look up online and include. They first found out about migration because um, these storks that were, I think they were either in America or England, would like disappear for um, months on end and they were like, where are they going? And there were all these different theories about where birds went in the winter and like some people thought they went to sleep underwater for like months and months and some people thought they went back to like bird land and it was like this big mystery. And then these storks started like reappearing in the spring with um, spears through their throats. So like a broken off spear literally through its throat. And so someone started looking into it and uh, they got some, uh, what they called archaeologist type people to examine the materials and found that these materials came from Africa. That's the only place that they, you know, there were these materials used by this tribe in Africa. And that's how they found out about migration. That's how they found about found out that birds migrate to Africa in the winter because these storks were flying over, getting sh- you know shot at, miraculously surviving and then flying back however many thousands of miles with these <laughs> these uh spear shafts in their throats it was really so interesting um it's again it's a radio lab podcast i can't remember what it's called i did find the radio lab podcast and there were lots of juicy facts in it so thank you jasmine for that It's called There and Back Again and the link is in the blogcast if you want to listen to it too, which I recommend you do because it's very good. Um, It's funny that the story Jasmine recalls is about a stork returning after nine months because if you listen carefully to her message I just played, you might hear the brand new baby Ember making some very cute little gargling noises in the background. Um, Welcome Ember and 
All of this got me wondering where the story that storks deliver babies came from. The myth originated long before it was known where storks went and why. In the pagan era, couples were often wed at summer solstice, a time associated with fertility. So nine months later, in spring, hey presto, the storks would arrive home at the same time as the babies arrived. The disappearance of birds in winter was in fact a mystery for much of history. The ancient Greek grandfather of zoology, Aristotle, had a few theories on where birds went, the first of which was actually migration. But doubtful that birds could fly such long distances, he also entertained the idea of transmutation, that one species of bird turned into another species every autumn and spring. The third, slightly more viable theory was that birds hibernate over winter. This idea survived right up until the 17th century, when scientists were trying to work out where birds hibernated, whether in trees, burrows, or like Jasmine says, even underwater. One of the early advocates of the migration theory, Charles Morton, however, argued that birds must, of course, migrate to the moon, but that was before it was known that there was no air or gravity in space. The idea did actually fly with a lot of people, though, and it lasted until a big breakthrough happened in 1822, when a German count shot down a stork with a spear through its neck, a spear that was found to have been thrown by the hands of an African, to quote. A further 25 storks were shot down in the same condition, having flown all the way from East Africa with spears sticking out of their necks. Not only did this prove how hardcore storks are, but it also proved the migration theory once and for all. And it inspired the idea of tagging birds and other animals, which has revealed many of the migratory secrets of so many species of animals that we know about today. Like whales swimming 5,000 miles to their calving grounds, or the Arctic tern, a bird that flies between the Arctic and the Antarctic in pursuit of an endless day. Then there's the monarch butterfly which flaps its way from New York to central Mexico, returning to the ancestral home of its great-grandparents. Or a dragonfly, born in a pond, which gets sucked up by evaporating air, hits a monsoon cloud, rides a jet stream across India and the Indian Ocean, landing on the East African coast in the rain, where it has a new baby, which makes the return 10,000-mile journey, travelling entirely by cloud. What's baffling is not just how unbelievably far some animals travel, but that they've travelled further and further over thousands of years to find the exact right conditions, even if those conditions exist closer by. A hardwired homing signal sends them back to the exact same spot, generation after generation, like sea turtles who swim 700 miles to lay their eggs on the same beach where they were born. It's a tried and tested spot that can be trusted, no matter the distance. But there are also innovative individuals who do not follow the flock. 
found to land somewhere along the migration route, like a trailblazer stalk that was tracked by some of the characters in the Radiolab podcast and found to be testing new ground somewhere completely different. This backup plan might ensure the continued survival and thrival of the species if and when better conditions are found or climates change, which of course they are, and migration patterns with them. One of the creatures that is capable of restoring some of the natural habitats destroyed by humans over the years, whose loss heavily contributes to climate change, and an animal whose work can also mitigate some of the effects of climate change, is the beaver. Its dams help to filter out pollutants and chemicals from flowing water. They hold back silt that forms a carbon sink and contain water, slowing its flow, which helps to prevent drought and flooding, whilst also creating the wetland habitats, once widespread in this country, that provide a home to an abundance of other life. They've been coined ecosystem engineers, and being proposed as one way of implementing the EU Water Framework Directive, just by doing what they do. Once a native species to Britain and found all the way across America, Asia and Europe, beavers were hunted to extinction here and near extinction everywhere else by the early 20th century. They were poached for their furs, beaver even came to mean a hat, and for the salicylic acid found in its glands which was used as a cure-all in medieval medicine. There were only around 1,200 beavers left in a few small pockets of Europe but populations have since been recovered to around 1 million across Europe and even small communities have returned to Mongolia and China. In the UK, beavers hadn't been around for 400 years until they began to be reintroduced in Scotland from 2009. Busy capturing their return to Cornwall since 2017 is award-winning wildlife filmmaker and my very old friend, Nina Constable. Nina and I both spent our teenage years in Bruton, a small town in Somerset, and I very much enjoyed catching up with her on her amazing journey so far. So Nina, how and where did the dream to become a wildlife filmmaker and photographer begin because it's not something I remember you ever talking about like where where was this dream born? I think that's a really good way of phrasing it kind of asking where the dream came from because I actually don't know if it was a dream of mine if I'm totally honest I think it was something I've always been interested in nature and wildlife and loved learning about the world around me but I think especially studying it wasn't something that I had kind of envisaged would be within my skill set or I think I didn't really know anybody that was a filmmaker and therefore hadn't really considered it as an option and I think as you come through school and you do all of the kind of careers tests and I always I think English was always the thing that I really excelled at and you're just always told that you should be a teacher if that's what you excel at and whenever you do all of the like 
I remember being on the computer and put in things and it would basically, yeah, just recommend that I should be a teacher or I can't even remember the other things, but I'd always hear them and be like, that's not really what I want to be, but I didn't really know. And then I ended up studying English at university, but at university got really obsessed with photography. And I took time out after university to really think about what I wanted to do and I saw this masters that the University of Bristol were doing that was called documentary practice and a lot of the kind of wildlife tv courses you have to have a science degree or you have to have an apprenticeship or some skills in camera work and I didn't have any of that but this masters you could do radio writing photography or film you could specialize and you just needed a relevant degree and I think that for me was where it all really started was I started not knowing which one I was going to specialise in but I just became obsessed with the film side of it. Yeah I think that's a very long-winded answer to how it got started so not a dream but very much I would say it was kind of quite a slow realisation of different interests of mine and that they could come together as a career. Mm. That's uh, long-winded uh, was good. <laughs> um, it's really interesting some of the things you say. Um, I remember doing those tests at school, at, un at college. Um, you know, what should you do? I think I had one maybe, and it was UN diplomat. <laughs> and everything else was just like red, 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 red. <laughs> so, um, okay, uh, and, and chose a completely random degree. And I think if you're, if you're brave enough to, to change direction and to, and, and have lucky enough to have the opportunity to try something you maybe never thought of because the way you put it was really good um that it was never presented to you as as an as an option it wasn't any, anything you thought of and actually we don't really think of work as like a conditioned idea but mm -hmm. it's totally just there are jobs that would never be in your sphere of awareness um and yeah how wonderful that you did see that opportunity and took it and it's taken you down such a just an adventurous path so tell us um how did starting to make film and and photograph wildlife change your view of the world god um I think it's affected me hugely because I've learned so much. So my my degree wasn't actually focused on wildlife. It was more kind of social documentary. But after that, I spent six months kind of waitressing with you actually at the chapel. It's saving up money to go and do an internship in Mozambique. And that was all based on working for a scientific research team that were working on the protection of manta rays, whale sharks and turtles. And as I said, I didn't study science and had a bit of an understanding, or I thought I did, of kind of how the world worked. But that was a real eye-opener of just starting to understand how in trouble a lot of our species are in our seas and working alongside these scientists that have dedicated their entire lives to the protection of this one particular species. And I think that internship kind of created the foundations for the way in which I work as well which is I, I wouldn't call myself a wildlife filmmaker or photographer necessarily because I do look at more the kind of the human interactions and the conservation side of it rather than just animal behavior and I think for me 
every single person that I interview or I speak to, I just, I learn more and more about kind of how much amazing work is being done, but also how endangered so much of our wildlife is and how much decline it's in. But I think another really important thing in the way in which I work is that I, I need hope, otherwise I would kind of collapse under the weight of some of the stories that I'm trying to tell, I think, and how sad some of it can seem and how hopeless it can seem. But I think by finding the stories of hope and even if it's a tiny little glimmer, I think that helps me to cope and to continue to tell these stories, but also why I think it's so important to raise awareness. And at the end of my films, I always try and have a call to action because I feel like you hope that you've inspired somebody to take action. And I think that's another big thing is not just kind of wanting someone to watch a film and think, oh, that was pretty or that was nice, but to actually think, oh, maybe there's something that I can do and to engage. Um, and so I think that's what it's, that's what my work has made me realise is that film, the power of film is a tool for education and awareness, I think. And again, another long-winded answer and a tangent. <laughs> Long-winded answers are what I'm after. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, that the, the film is really powerful and, and that really comes across in your in your filmmaking, what, what you just described. It's definitely, you, you put it into practice, you know, it's, um, it does inspire and, and I think that ultimately serves to help protect um, the environment and and the species that are in danger, because unless people kind of care and are, and are inspired, then there's nothing to to protect, you know, to uh, motivate people. So you're, you filmed and edited a six-part series for WWF called Journey to the Sea, which sits on Sky Nature, I read on your website, and because um, I don't have Sky, so I've never had Sky, so actually. <laughs> terrestrial all the way um but I I wondered about your um your own journey to the sea and how you because you live in Cornwall now you're a diver swimmer and a surfer and your wonderful partner Tom is is a marine biologist isn't he so just wondered how your relationship with the sea and what drew like how that has also been connected to your journey through film and and whether living by the sea was something you always dreamed of well I think my entire family has always loved the sea my mum I think what like when she she was on like brought up four of us four unruly children on her own from when I was two and a half um and being by the sea was always our holidays and she would kind of pack us all up in the car and drive to France and just never a campsite just a field that she could find but just had to be very close to the sea and we would literally just spend two weeks in Brittany just on the beach and she would always just whenever she would swim she would just swim for hours and we'd always be like where's mum that's still in the sea um and so we've always as a family that's really important to us and my dad as well you know he's a he lives on like right on the beach in West Bay and I remember from a very young age he lived in Wales in the Brecon Beacons and he would always take us river swimming more than sea swimming but um 
he also had fishing boats at one point and so I think my family have always had a bit of an affinity with water and yeah whether it's rivers or the seas and I think once you've grown up with that it's something that you can't really shake and then I think my partner and I spent a long time living separately from one another um, and when we were kind of first getting to that point we were like we might live together and where would that be and we both just like it has to be by the sea and like Cornwall's the one place in the UK that we really felt drawn to but I wasn't sure that I could make a living down here and so I was actually quite daunted and thought that Bristol was probably the place I should be especially with film work and things but I just thought if I could make it work living by the sea then I was just going to give it a go and so yeah I think it was definitely something that we really wanted and it is for me I spend a lot of time at my computer as much as I think filming can sometimes seem like a really glamorous job I would say it's probably 60% an office job where I'm sat in here just editing but just being able to jump in the sea not that I do this every day I wish I was that good but to have that option to go and jump in the sea and just kind of just feel calmed and connected and there's also I think the mental health benefits of kind of submerging your face in cold water as well you really feel that I think when I'm feeling really tense from having just like been at my computer you just feel everything kind of fall away a little bit and then I think other people that also want to live by the sea and the community that are down here you're just connected to other people that just feel very similarly to you and and so I think it just kind of it's ingrained in the way that we live down here and is in our conversations and in our community and as you said with my boyfriend being a marine biologist and a lot of the work that I do being connected to marine work as well it's just so much a part of our everyday and yeah just love it a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah it really um it really comes across like a beautiful place to live and a and an incredible lifestyle that you've got although you know yeah we we share pictures of our like beautiful experiences on the coast and not the 60% of the time spent on the computer so it's always good to have a <laughs> reality check and actually make makes it even more important like you say um and it's so great that you've made it work there and in fact that Cornwall has taken you again down a another little avenue because I know you've been really involved in the Cornwall um beaver project and yeah tell us how you got involved with beavers um what was <laughs> how did it all start so I can kind of give them credit for establishing my career down here. My first ever paid job was with Cornwall Wildlife Trust. They gave me my very first paid commission. And ever since then, I've had a working relationship with them, but also I would say I've made some really great friends as well. Um, and I think the Cornwall Beaver Project, that was a collaboration between Woodland Valley Farm, where the Beaver Project is, Dexter University, um, and Cornwall Wildlife Trust and I think there are a few other partners that I have forgotten but it was a collaboration between them and I'd been working with Cornwall Wildlife Trust for about two years by then on a number of other conservation projects but mostly marine but they wanted to run a beaver trial but in order to do so because 
you're not allowed to just release them wild in the UK at the moment. They have to be within an enclosure and it has to be an official trial. But the beaver proof fences, because as you know, they're incredible builders, but they're also very good at burrowing. Um, it's an incredibly expensive fence and they needed the, to generate the funds to be able to buy the fence in order to run the trial. And so that's when they got in touch with me and asked me to help produce a crowdfunder film. And that's where it all began for me, to be honest. Um, and I've, be, I've just continued to be involved from the get-go, really. And some of it paid, some of it not paid, some of it just going over there because it's been really nice to just have beavers down the road and go and kind of, yeah, see these incredible animals. Um, but they, the crowdfunder was successful and then the beavers were released onto the site, I think three and a half years ago now. And I was there also to record or film the release day for Cornwall Wildlife Trust as well and have made a number of films for them since. Um, but also Springwatch and Countryfile have also come down to do um, some filming there and I've featured on Countryfile and contributed footage to Autumnwatch and Springwatch. Yeah, it's just been an amazing project for so many reasons and I think I'm going to be involved in it probably forever. <laughs> Oh wow, that's um that's amazing that the way you were approached that the and the crowdfunder angle meant that yeah from the get go you're actually part of the project that must be so such a nice way to work and and your how did your relationship with like the species and and, and maybe particular family that you've been filming for so long how is that evolved from kind of meeting them to where you are now um oh it's just just amazing to be honest I think from the time that they released so I'd never seen a beaver before until the release day and I think I mentioned this on Sunday when we had the uh had the Q&A after the most recent film release it was a really emotional day not just for you know, everybody that had kind of helped to make it happen, but just to see this species back in a space where it always had been until we hunted them to extinction and back where it really should be. And I think the most incredible thing, as well as seeing the the pair that were put in, you never know if they're gonna get on with one another. Um, the first spring, I captured the first footage of the first pair of baby beavers that were born for the first time in 400 years in Cornwall, which is just incredible and helps that they are also incredibly cute. Um, but that was just amazing. And then this year they've had another pair of kits. And so there's now a, a minimum of six, Chris thinks maybe seven or eight beavers there. But as well as seeing the family grow, I visited the site, I would say, you know, a few times, at least handful of times, every single season, every year for the past three years. And just to watch the transformation on the site is unbelievable. And I think a really, really unique opportunity as a filmmaker to document something for such a long and consistent period of time. I think if you, you know, sometimes you would go somewhere for six months to try and capture a shot of a particular behavior or species, but this is 
just this project that I have become involved in that I just can't quite believe that this is 20 minutes down the road from me and every single time I go there there's a new waterway or a new dam and everything looks a little bit different and just watching this you know what was a valley that was you know transformed by us I think in the Victorian times to be returned to what looks like this like Bavarian wetland area that seems like a foreign ecosystem and environment here in the UK but actually is what it should look like is just incredible so I think seeing the family grow and seeing the transformation on the site I feel so incredibly lucky and honoured to be able to be a witness to that and yeah like whenever I see them whenever I go over there and get to see the beavers I just yeah it's just every single time I get really excited and I'm always trying to drag my friends there to come along well I would love to come and see the beavers when they're allowed to travel I'm straight down to call to come and see them <laughs> they are they are incredibly cute um like you say and and really interesting kind of creatures like what uh, they're semi-aquatic mammals that second largest rodent I mean rodent seems like a it's got a horrible um horrible name isn't it or it's got a horrible um you know yeah exactly so but tell us a little bit about their behavioral like qualities what what are they like how do they sound what you know what are their little what do you most enjoy about about them um I think Watching them eat and hearing them eat is hilarious because you often hear them before you see them. And it's kind of like this quite like chipmunky, squirrely noise. It's like this. And you can just hear this and you know that they're somewhere like gnawing down on some willow or stripping some bark somewhere. Um, but I also, I just, that if you see their hands, they're incredibly dexterous. They've got these very long fingers. And if you can get a good view of them, eating or building either one you see the way that they're kind of like if they're poking a stick into a dam they're really handling it and they're pushing it and then they also like they push mud like they pull it into their chest and then almost do this like chest push and like shunt all of this mud and into these like spaces in the dam where they're kind of trying to stick everything together or kind of fix holes and you just watch the way that they work and how busy they are and that they really are you know they're called ecosystem engineers or nature's architects and just watching them work is incredible I don't know any other animal that builds and works in the way that they do but also the way that they eat if they've got like quite a long stick and you see them kind of holding it like this almost like they're holding a flute and then they're kind of like passing it through their teeth and you just see it kind of like stripping the bark and they're just remarkable and yeah they're just the way that they and the, also I think the interactions between the kids sometimes the kids and the parents is really tender I've got some footage of you know the mum and the baby sitting on the bank and you know they are mammals and they breastfeed and at one point you see the little kit kind of feeding on the mum and then the mum's had enough so then she kind of she's like off get off now <laughs> but Eva comes back and she's like all right and then they kind of do these little like touching of their noses and it just looks like little kisses and they're just yeah they're remarkable and you know you never know what's good like whether they are I think we do anthropomorphize animals quite a lot but I feel like they're 
I feel like their interactions sometimes can seem very tender and caring and yeah I just think they're amazing yeah they are yeah how lucky to get to spend so much time watching them um do you think that that they we can live harmoniously with beavers that humans and beavers can share you know the the space in in a better way I definitely think we can but I also think that we have to relinquish this need to completely control an environment and I think that's what people fear about beavers is the way that they behave and the way that they transform it might not necessarily always be exactly where we want them to be building or and, and so I think we have to be ready to accept that there may be some disruptions and there is a bit of a loss of control but actually if we can support the people that might might suffer from some inconveniences might suffer from some of those disruptions if we make sure that they are supported or that people really understand that the the positive impacts so far outweigh the negatives for us for our future for our environments hopefully people might be more willing to accept some of those and i think that's what this most recent film is about is just trying to show that they're a builder they will transform and change a landscape that can't be denied they are going to make changes but that those changes will be for the better for us for our future for our future survival for the health of us for our ecosystems it just you know we need to make space for nature and we can't always control everything but there needs to be a solid infrastructure in place so that this doesn't feel like it's something that's really forced upon people i think that's the other thing is it needs to be treated gently and empathetically and those that are worried need to be understood and heard as well i think that's another really important thing but i think in the long run not only can we live alongside them but we need to live alongside them mm -hmm. yeah i mean that generally just sounds like a good ethos for living right there um yeah we're not in control we can't control everything we need to listen and be empathetic and we need to learn to share better yeah. it's like the first thing we teach our children you know you have to learn to share and you know this isn't our planet and our environment it's everything that lives here needs to share it and share it appropriately absolutely um one of the one of the favorite facts that i found out about beavers is that their the, the origin of their name the genus um castor castor which i say the greek roots translates it as he who excels which <laughs> when you talk about how they you know yeah they build and they're busy and they're ecosystem engineers um that's yeah something that we need to like give over to to accept that other species can can excel and, and be busy and and have an effect on the landscape too um so <laughs> did you not know that um <laughs> And talk about the castic land um but yeah that's i had no idea he she who 
excels amazing yeah they do um and so you're you're working um a lot a lot in the uk at the moment for obvious reasons um but your job your job must be very seasonal do you so do you work outdoors in all kinds of weather at all kinds of year uh, all times of the year and are you are you enjoying doing that more locally uh, than you would or or would you work a lot in the UK normally so I actually I would say the beginning of last year I started to work a lot more in the UK because I started to um, do a lot of work with WWF UK and they were not promoting but just trying to tell the stories of a lot of the work that they're doing around the UK coastlines especially that weren't really known about and especially the journey to the sea series as well um that I worked on with Mindfully Wired that was you know all of that was Devon based as well and I I think yeah last year there was this kind of I felt a bit of a shift in the work that I was being that was coming to me or that I like the direction was just becoming more and more UK based and I really loved it because I think I have been in the past guilty of overlooking UK wildlife and thinking that you know it's much more exotic to be going off you know to Kenya to film elephants or Mozambique to film whale sharks but the transition to working a lot more in the UK just opened my eyes to how incredible our UK wildlife is and just what we have here and so I have I've loved it and then this year especially just before lockdown I just finished filming for WWF UK on a film all about seagrass that they've been working on this huge seagrass restoration project where they planted over a million seagrass seeds and because I do the editing as well as the filming I then just had a lot of editing to do over lockdown anyway and so it my work kind of carried on almost as normal. There are a few things that did get cancelled, but then we just adapted and I ended up doing a film for Blue Marine Foundation where I sent out little road mics to all the contributors and they filmed themselves on their phones using these little mics. And it was, in some ways, I think lockdown forced people to be more collaborative and especially as somebody that works on their own a lot, I really enjoyed working in some ways with a bigger network of people and being creative with how that all came together but also just being able to spend a little bit more time at home and check on my chickens and my veg patch and just be a little bit calmer actually I think that's what lockdown gave me was just a bit more calmness and a bit less rushing around um yeah that must be, yeah, really nice um, to slow down the pace and, and get a bit more settled in, um, be in your garden a bit more. Do you, what's your sort of favourite time of year and what, what does the winter hold for you this year? So I've just started working on a brand new film project for something called the Penrith Landscape Partnership. And that is a huge um, kind of multi-stakeholder project that's all based in West Penwith um, in Cornwall. And that is looking at kind of trying to make it a really, really healthy 
um, environmentally sound kind of working landscape, so not booting off farmers and landowners and saying, you know, we're just going to turn all of this into a nature reserve, but looking at working with the people that are already there and looking at how they can evolve their farming practices or their land management to be sympathetic to the landscape and the species that rely on it, um, as well as protecting and restoring a lot of the ancient sites there as well. It sounds like a great project. Um, so, so you'll be staying local and... Staying local and yeah, I work with someone called Gemma Waring who's an amazing filmmaker herself and drone pilot and I think we're going to do like a lot of the drone work over like while there's restrictions that's something that we can kind of still carry on and capture but I'm also working on a new film for WWF um, about what it's like to film in the UK actually it's kind of like a video diary style thing um, looking at my work with them and what it's been like for me kind of learning as I go um, that's going to be a really nice thing to yeah to be focusing on as well. Oh wonderful yeah I look forward to that how nice to have a, a film about the filmer uh, the filmmaker <laughs> um, and um, yeah it sounds like winter stays pretty busy for you and not much of a hibernation period but um, hopefully you will also find time for some rest um oh well thanks so much nina it's been really great to hear about your incredible journey really inspiring and um and about the beavers and really excited to see where where it goes next oh well thank you so much for chatting to me it's been really nice to chat to a familiar face voice <laughs> yeah really nice to see you in act in well it's not really in real life but as real as it as it gets it's a really good idea to follow nina on instagram or your preferred social media platform at nina constable media because her photos and footage are always astounding and whilst they're not of her behind the desk for 60% of the time, know that she is working extraordinarily hard to create the magic on screen. Head to the blogcast to see Nina's new Beavers Without Borders mini-doc with a Q&A and find links to the Beaver Trust and Nina's website as well as some lovely pictures of her. November the 30th marks the pagan festival of Hecate Trivia, goddess of the crossroads, Trivia meaning where three roads meet. Daughter of the titan Perses and the nymph Asteria, Hecate presides over heaven, earth and sea, representing the blessings of daily life. In ancient Greece, altars to Hecate were placed at crossroads where people travelling at night would place offerings in return for safe passage. Depicted holding three torches, Hecate used her light to help Demeter search for her daughter Persephone when she was stolen by Hades to the underworld. And shown with three bodies standing back to back, looking in all directions, Hecate is known as a triple goddess who celebrates all phases of life, such as birth, life, death and past, present, future, to name just a few. Now, to a country very much at a crossroads, 
America, where Thanksgiving is celebrated on November the 26th. To tell us about this tradition, I called on another old friend, Joe Driscoll. When we met, he was touring the UK festival circuit with Chai Woolers, making us dance when he lit up the stage and keeping us singing all night around the fire. It was our loss when he eventually went back home, but their gain, as he turned his passion for politics into a career and now serves his community as 5th District Councillor. He's also working on some new music, so watch this space. And to hear his song, The Water, which is the subject of the Thanksgiving story you're about to hear, head to the blogcast. Thank you to Joey for all the music, the tired feet, the lost voices, and for these very special words that you shared with us. Now, when I think of Thanksgiving, I think, of course, of the food and the family. But on a deeper level, I think of the origins of the holiday. 1621, October, the Pilgrims, and the Wampanoag people celebrated a harvest together. I was born and raised in a city called Syracuse in New York, in Onondaga County. It's home of the Onondaga Nation, which is the heart of what the Europeans would come to call the Iroquois Confederacy, but what was known among their people as the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. The history tells of a time of great war and violence when an Onondaga Hiawatha, guided by a prophet known as the Great Peacemaker, established a confederacy. They brought warring tribes together, the Mohawk, the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Oneida, and the Onondaga, and they met on the shores of their sacred lake. And there, they established a great law of peace and moved their society from one based on war to one based on trade and cooperation. Right there on Onondaga Lake, the leaders of all these tribes gathered, dug a deep hole, and there they agreed to bury their weapons of war. The modern phrase, bury the hatchet, came from this historic moment of peace. Indeed, the founding fathers of America acknowledged that much of the U.S. Constitution was inspired and guided by the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and their great law of peace. So, as I grew older and learned more about this local history of Syracuse, I was blown away and amazed that such a major shift in human consciousness had happened at Onondaga Lake, only a few miles from my home. The very seeds of what would become democracy originated right there at the foot of the lake. See, as a child, we didn't know Onondaga Lake was the site of the Great Peace Treaty. All we knew about Onondaga Lake was that it was America's most polluted lake, one of the most polluted bodies of water in the world. The company Allied Chemical had dumped 165,000 pounds of mercury in the lake, and scientists estimate that 7 million cubic yards of lake bottom sediment are contaminated. Also, the city and the county sewers had pumped raw sewage into the lake for decades. It often makes me think of Chief Seattle who, in discussions of selling their land, we are only considering selling because we know if we do not, the white man will come with guns and take the land. And he spoke about how the idea was very foreign to him. How could one buy or sell the sky, the water, or the land? 
He feared that the Europeans' appetite would devour the earth and leave only a desert. But as he concluded, he said, if we do agree to allow you the use of the land, we do it on this condition, that the white man must treat the beasts of this land as his brother. Teach your children what we have taught our children, that the earth is our mother. I think of the guiding principle of the Onondaga, principle of the seventh generation, a foundational concept that those living today should work and live each day keeping in mind how your life, how your existence will benefit the people that are seven generations into the future. Thanksgiving is the time where I reflect on that seventh generation concept. What world will we leave the children? So I'll leave you with the Thanksgiving address from the Haudenosaunee people. Today we have gathered and we see that the cycles of life continue. We have been given the duty to live in balance and harmony with each other and with all living things. So now we bring our minds together as one as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. Now our minds are one. We are all thankful to our mother the earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk about upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us, as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother, we send greetings and thanks. Now, our minds are one. When I was planning this episode of the podcast, I thought it was going to be about migration in the sense of moving away. I originally called the episode Crossing Borders until, whilst making it, I realised that migration is more about coming home than moving away. Whether to a new home being tried and tested or one that has always been there, even if you didn't know it and like the beavers haven't returned for 400 years or whether compelled by some invisible force to travel 700 miles across the ocean or 10,000 miles through the clouds like the creatures of the sea and sky, let's make sure their homes are still there when they arrive after the long journey. Our home depends on it. Migration has evolved as a survival strategy, which is strangely juxtaposed with what we're having to do to survive this pandemic. As the instinct to nest this winter is compounded by the necessity of it, for those without a home, whether literally homeless or figuratively struggling to find a space that feels settled and secure, I imagine that any feelings of displacement may be even starker this year. Home may not just be in one place, and it might change from generation to generation, year to year, season to season. Since moving out of my family home, aged 18, I've been something of a nomad, not often staying put for more than a year, if that. I kept moving. Yet as the spring lockdown started, I was lucky enough to land back in the area where I grew up, in South London before my family moved to the countryside when I was nine. 
Coming home at this time was healing for wounds that I hadn't even realised were still open. I'm extremely grateful to be able to be at home and you can read more about that in my blog, Falling in Love During Lockdown, the links in the blogcast. It seems to me like we're at many crossroads right now, both in our collective history and individual lives as we adapt together. As unsettling as that might feel, the passage of time has never been one directional. In my local Brockwell Park, there is a 600-year-old oak tree, a sapling at the time of the Wars of the Roses. She reminds me that times have changed and will continue to change. And as the leaves turn their final shade of yellow, reaching the other side of the life cycle that started with the spring lockdown. I'm reminded that we are always changing too, growing with time, migrating with the seasons, across the different sides of ourselves. And though, like trees, it looks like we're staying still right now, there is always movement. for listening to the balanced garden podcast which is independently produced by me tiger lily raphael and me jasmine pradhan the soundtrack comes from the manasseh meets praise lp produced by my father nick manasseh and licensed by roots garden records for links to the music and to find photos as well as other sources head to the blogcast at balancedgarden.co.uk where you can also subscribe to the mailing list and receive an email when the next podcast is out in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, live well and enjoy. Growing together, cultivating the spaces between us. Balanced Garden is a well-living platform that bridges the world inside and outside. We offer ideas for reflections, recipes and practices through a podcast, blog, yoga and workshops that support healthy relationships with ourselves, each other, nature and all the spaces in between.